Hello and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. This week, I've got a brilliant podcast to recommend, which I've previously been a guest on myself. Mental Podcast was created by Bobby Temps to break down mental health stigma and discrimination. It's a space to hear honest and insightful interviews in the hope that listeners will feel more empowered to continue the conversation and work on their own mental health too. You can start with any topic that interests you, or you could look out for episode 85 on insomnia, where I'm their guest and I talk about my personal experience that led to us starting heights. Now back to today's show. Today's guest is Dr. Daniel Imina, a leading child and adolescent psychologist based in Los Angeles who, as a black man living in California in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, joins us in Black History Month to discuss, well, our own history, the one from our childhood, before we even know what's going on as we unpack where we all pick up unconscious biases as babies and how that can manifest as we grow. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Why don't we start by unpacking some of the key things that develop from a psychological perspective in a baby's brain? Let's set the stage a little bit. We kind of have this perspective that the way we see the world now is the way we've all seen the world, even as a baby. But that's not really quite how it is. We come into this world completely born helpless. Everything is foreign. The only world we've actually ever known was was this loud, very warm, very cozy place. And all of a sudden we enter into this world, it's not as cozy, not as warm. And it's difficult to get what you need. It's even difficult to even figure out your needs. So birth itself is traumatic. Uh, There's strange sounds, there's shapes, there's colors, there's objects. What's living, what's not? Where do I end? Where do you start? There's a lot of difficulty initially in helping you how your brain has to determine what your reality is or what your experience of reality is. Initially, your brain even struggles to distinguish you from your mother. After about the first month of life, you begin to be able to distinguish different states. So you're able to kind of get a sense of what the internal world is versus the external world. And this is important because it starts to begin the process of differentiating self from objects or self from other But the differentiation is still very primitive quite early. After about five months, we we start to actually get a little bit better at separating and individuating. We recognize that we actually are separate from mom, though by this time, hopefully you formed a very strong attachment to mom. We also recognize that there are others, which leads roughly around age seven or eight months, leads to something called stranger anxiety, which is then followed by separation anxiety. And in in some ways, here is actually where we start the foundation of bias. It it was needed initially to establish safety, trust, survival. Who's going to feed me? Who's going to care for me? And uh, another great way for actually us to discuss this, and we'll, we'll talk about this more, is Erickson's stages of psychosocial development. And here we'll talk about some of the goals of each stage, which is like this first stage is actually trust versus mistrust. That's like literally what it's called from zero to about a year and a half. 
And really the question is, will the infant's basic needs be met in the way that they view the world as safe and able to meet their needs? So as I said, I've seen some of the studies about babies recognizing their mother's faces, which then leads them to confusion from a very young age with other babies with other colored skin. So it doesn't really matter if they're black or they're white. Black babies will do that to white babies and white babies will do that to black babies because they're trying to recognize what's safe from their mother. Um, and so there's almost an inherent bias system that's built in. Is that right? Absolutely, actually. So the newborn brain, again, processing reality newly, weighs most inputs and stimuli equally initially. As the brain starts its maturation process, it starts to learn to attend more to sights and sounds that are important in the baby's life, such as the faces that match his or her caregiver's race, sounds in the infant's native language, right? Because that leads to food. When babies are about five months old, they, they actually get better at being able to distinguish among faces of all races equally well. By nine months, these babies react even more swiftly to their own race than others. They differentiate more readily between faces and match emotional sounds with facial expressions even faster, nearly at the same level as an adult brain would. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what happens next? So the next piece here is that it actually leads to this next Erickson stage of development, which is uh, ongoing growth, ongoing processing of the faces you see and such. So the inherent bias here, again, still starts with this piece of I need to be able to find my source of sustenance, my source of safety. Yeah, I mean, what would we intentionally want to watch out for or try our best as parents to avoid well, one of the first things is actually just being aware that uh, children can demonstrate bias and preference very early on. There was a Northwestern University study around, they looked at, at kids four to five years old. And what they actually found in this study was the majority of children in the study, both black and white, had a strong and consistent pro-white bias. So even at that age, even black kids would have a pro-white bias based on what their experiences and what they've already been exposed to, or what they already see, the, the games they play, the toys, the cartoons, the dolls, they've already created a sense in themselves that there's a difference and potentially this is better. And this is challenging because in these initial stages of development, especially age three to five, which is um, Erickson calls initiative versus guilt, you're working to start to work out your own independence. You're trying to figure out, can I assert myself in this world? Can I survive in this world? You're starting to find out some of your skills, your interpersonal skills. You use play as a way to learn. You, you interact with more kids and you practice different ways of, of interacting. This leads you to your next stage of development, which is industry versus inferiority. That's is key here. Because in, in understanding industry, industry is your ability to manipulate objects. You, you, you start to figure out what you're good at. Am I good at games? Am I good at, at, at academics? Am I the athletic kid? And how do I fit in in the social structure? Already at a very young age, your peer group actually starts to gain greater significance in determining you. And what you, society values starts to determine you. So society says that you're in the in-group, there's a tendency that that may make you feel a little bit more superior, even at such an early age. Or if society says you're in the out-group, there's already that tendency to have, start to feel inferior, even by six. 
And this, there's actually a great quote on this particular topic. It was um, by the great orator, author, debater, James Baldwin. This was actually back in 1965 in a debate with William Buckley at actually at Cambridge. Uh, here, here's the quote. It comes as a great shock around the age of five, six or seven to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance, along with everybody else, has not pledged allegiance to you. That's a challenging thing to discover at such a young age. This is actually why we need to have these conversations at very young ages, because at some point in time, kids start to realize, oh, I, I am not as good as them, potentially, and, and, or I am better than them. And that's challenging for a kid. I think one of the things that we, you know, obviously very timely to have the conversation after the George Floyd murder, the reality is a lot of uh, white people started to listen into this idea that, you know, it's not that I'm purposefully racist, but you have to understand that, you know, you might be growing up or in the case of certainly the UK and the US, you do grow up in an inherently racist society and it's not your fault because you grew up in it. However, it does exist. And it's the things that you were just saying about, you know, the kind of in-group or out-group and, the, you know, the, the black kids actually recognizing the white groups to be safer and comfortable for them. I mean, it's, uh, it's how things are presented on TV. It's how it might feel in school. And these things are a great example of why that would happen, for example, in America, as opposed to a black kid growing up in Nigeria. Exactly. If, if I had a challenge in school with a teacher or peer in Nigeria, there was a way my brain would frame that. It's related to interpersonally, related to them. When I came to the States, I still saw it in that particular way. But now in, in, in reference, which I'll talk about later, I'll realize that I was seen differently than maybe I even saw them. I just thought maybe that's a mean teacher. That's a mean kid. Oh, why is the teacher always taking that kid's side? That's interesting. Why can't I report if there's an issue or a concern? Why would I be more likely to be labeled as the, the bad kid or the problem kid than the other kid who started the whole thing in the first place? And this is something you grow up into and you start to learn and observe. And even from my perspective coming into it, it was extremely challenging and frustrating as a kid quite early on. What age do you actually define as the end of childhood before adolescence? You know, what are some of the most interesting patterns that you can share with us with regards to developing child psychology and the influence of uh, nurture versus nature around them? So great, great question. Yeah. So we, we start to think of adolescence relatively starting around age 10. And there's a, it, it overlaps in many ways with what happens in the context of puberty. Puberty is a dynamic time of change. Um, not only are there changes occurring brain-wise, but we know about all the physical changes, the awkwardness and everything that comes with that, the new feelings and sensations, um, hairs growing random places. I was uh, born with this beard. So. I, I believe yeah. that. I believe yeah. that it just came out. It looks amazing, by the way. Uh, the body image issues, their cognitive changes, the social changes, the emotional changes, which is often the things that we think of with adolescents. But really, in this stage of adolescence, between 12 and 18, you go through this uh, discovery period of trying to figure out your identity. Erickson, again, calls this identity versus role confusion. You're trying to figure out who you're going to be. How does society define you? How do you define yourself? 
Now, the whole point of this is that it's building towards your independence, separating from home, separating from your parents. Um, you actually start trying on new roles. This is why, you know, kids will, especially in their teens, they'll dress differently, act differently, talk differently. They may hang out with different friends than they used to. And the roles that we try on uh, are sometimes determined by our family, but often it's mostly by our peers and our society. This is kind of the nurture element of it. So we try on these roles to try to see if they fit. And if they fit, does it fit well in society? Now, keep in mind that it's a feedback mechanism here. So society is also stating what role you may fit into, right, based on how you look, how you talk, how you act. The goal of this stage is something we call fidelity, where you, you have a more secure sense of self. And in the context of that secure sense of self, you're able to accept others and their differences. Now, not everybody actually gets to that. And, and these are these stages you may struggle with your entire life. Okay, difficult question, but what would you say your top three tips are for parents to consider for uh, their children to help them avoid embedding prejudice in their brain? Is that even possible? It's not necessarily purely possible to avoid the implicit biases, but you can modify them if you're aware of them. The top one really is, as a parent, be aware of your own and already start mechanisms to work on working out your own and moderating and modifying them. That's really number one. Going from, them, from there is determine you, how you're going to address it. It's an intentional process. So like brain health, like what you, you're doing in espousing, it needs to be intentional. You need to read about it. You need to consider that, hey, when you buy them a mix of dolls and toys and such, they have different looking kids in there. Um, when you buy them books, they have different looking kids and different stories. Be mindful of the social environment you're nurturing. What kids do you invite over, right? What parents do you invite over? What projects do you do? What shows do you watch? And then understand that addressing bias is, is a process. It takes time. Uh, be patient with those discussions. In these early stages, um, especially in like even from three to five, kids love to ask a lot of questions. They have a thirst of knowledge. And they're going to say things that may embarrass you at times. Don't crush them for, for that. Don't respond in a way that the kid, the child feels guilt. If they feel guilt, they will relate that conversations around difference are uncomfortable. Conversations around difference make people angry. And then people get uncomfortable with having conversations around differences. So being able to quietly go, oh, why did you think that? And even explain to them some of the things that are going on. Let's say they do watch some of these things on the news. Gently be able to explain to them of like, well, some people have felt that they haven't been heard. And when people feel that they haven't been heard or they haven't been taking, they haven't been cared for or treated properly, sometimes they get really frustrated. And with kids, remember, you always got to connect it back to them. You know how last week when you wanted this toy from me and I wasn't able to give it to you at that time? You know how you get really frustrated too? Well, imagine if that was just like your whole life. When you connect it back to a kid, they get a greater sense of it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. 
If you want to know more about how well you're feeding your brain, you can head to yourheights.com forward slash brain food to get your free score from one to 100 and start taking action from there. See you next week. Thank you.